Come on, Jimmy. <laughs> you better fight against when this balloon of yours goes up. Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government so the first thing, uh, Kathleen, I would like to talk to you about is just your background. Um, we're going to talk about sex robots today, basically. Um, but I'm interested in what your background is and uh, what drew you to this topic. Because uh, you're, you're, you're currently, I know, a professor of ethics and artificial intelligence technology at uh, De Montfort University. Is that right? Okay. So, yes, I'm a, a professor of... Ethics and Culture of Robots and AI. And the reason why I put culture in there is I wanted to show that actually my work always looks at any phenomena culturally. So I think sometimes what, so that's why it's got the culture in. It's kind of, it's, um, it's basically homage to my social anthropology background. So I'm a social anthropologist by training. I did my PhD at Cambridge in the Department of Social Anthropology. And when I first arrived, I actually thought I would do something around environmentalism because a lot of my colleagues at the time were going off to Siberia and um, far-flung countries. And that we were kind of anthropologists who were interested in how we develop ideas of being human and what is our relationship with the environment or with symbols and those kind of things. And so I kind of expected that I would go off to South America somewhere and look at how indigenous people anthropomorphize nature and explore that in the context of environmentalism, I think. I was, that was where I was going. And then what happened is the, the day I was waiting for my PhD results, I, uh, they weren't ready. I didn't know whether I'd got accepted onto the PhD program. So I went to pass the time at the cinema. And I went to the cinema, I watched a film called AI Artificial Intelligence. And, and the story, AI Artificial Intelligence, is about a boy who, if you, you know, the question of the film is, if you make a machine look like a human, particularly a human being that we attribute lots of feelings and emotions around so for example infants or children does that alter the way that people interact with them and I thought that was a very interesting question and I realized that I didn't need to go to Amazonia to look at the relationship between people and things or persons and property I could do that by looking at robots and so that's that's where it began I went back found out that I would got accepted onto the PHP program and then um, told my supervisor I wanted to study robots. So, yeah, so you're a humanistic anthropologist of, of, of a sort. So I'm wondering, uh, I'm a little curious, studying robots is not, is, is not a study of humans, is it? But, so are you studying how humans affect, oh, sorry, how robots affect humans in an yeah, anthropological sense? Yeah, I mean, sense? I don't accord... Um, robots, I don't call any artifact the same status as a human being. There are some people in anthropology and other research fields that do. I don't, 
Um, so what I'm really interested in is what this figure is, the robot. Where does it come from? What does it mean? What ideas go into the making of robots? And particularly because, at least in the popular imagination anyway, robots are about human beings. They're about resembling human beings. Um, so there's a lot of issues there about what happens to us in a kind of mechanized society, you know, do we turn more like we're becoming more like machines? And so all those uh, issues uh, interested me. I suppose my humanistic one is my humanistic impulse is really because I examine power and and violence. And um, yeah, as I as I just said, I don't. I don't put artifacts on the same par as human beings. I mean, I make a radical distinction in my work between people and property, for instance. That's really interesting, and we'll and hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that as we as we as, as the conversation ensues. Uh, I'm just wondering before we go on to talk about sort of the sex robot industry. How, do you think, uh, Kathleen, that we're at a different stage now in our in our development with the development of robots? I mean, uh, have they reached an advanced stage? Um, where they are undermining that distinction between personhood and thinghood? If you ask some people in the field, some will say yes. A lot of um, experts, like actual artificial intelligence researchers, will say no. I am on the side of no, and I don't just think it's an opinion. I think it can be qualified by an empirical study of what's actually going on in the world. Um there are no robots that exist that have consciousness or intelligence. There's no AI that exists. There are programs that can run, that can carry out more complicated sequence of actions. You can, I suppose, what differs today in some of the programs is actions can be taken on the basis of uh, decisions made within a program as opposed to an outsider or a third party or a human being in the loop. And I think for those reasons, life will ex be experienced as more unpredictable and uncertain than it was before, because at least before you could, if a decision was made about your life somewhere, you could go and hopefully through a, through a chain, um, find out who made the decision. But you can't, there are a lot of systems now that are just embedded in these digital networks running programs and actually people aren't there's no one person or one group within an organization that can be identified as making a decision about another human being's life and for some people that shows that we are in a different place you know that um this means that we're entering this this new realm of robotics and ai i think it's just a terrible indictment of capitalism to be perfectly honest and it just shows how dehumanized and depersonalizing capitalism is is just spontaneously i mean i don't think this is the end point of it um i think when as soon as they can automate any process and take human beings out the loop because human beings you've got to remember in a capitalist system human beings are in the loop because a they need to be, and B, because they're simultaneously getting paid. So if you're an organization, if you can, A, remove that person, 
you can be, save yourself money. And as the primary driving force of capitalism is to make money, then AI is, is like, you know, it's, 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 it's God's system in a way. So that's interesting. Let me pick you up on one point there. I mean, because I think this goes to the heart of uh, how you conceive of uh, the issue of robots and more broadly sex robots. And that's, in some sense, outside of the commodification issues that you talk about, that uh, that there's that what it means to be a human being is in some way contingent. It's some some way messy, whereas being a robot is mechanistic, efficient. It it works. Would that be um, fair to say? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that yes, I. It's not that being human is contingent because, I mean, human is the term that we apply as, as a way of identifying who we are. And it's, it's very spontaneous. You know, we know who we are. We know what we can do. We know how we can behave and create. And machines are basically mechanical products. Of varying degrees of complexity and they will get more and more complex but they can never be measured you know as the same kind of thing but unfortunately in our world today they they're simultaneously being measured as in some kind of equivalent algebraic formula thank you that's useful so then i'm going to ask the most direct question then um how do you conceive of what a sex robot is. I think it's primarily a, a mechanical uh, doll that runs programs with penetrable orifices. I mean, I think that would be the most accurate technical definition of a of a sex robot. I don't think it's much more than that. Yeah, because I've seen I've seen uh, I've seen pictures of them, and they are quite they're like. Big mechanical dolls is the best way Absolutely. I can uh, describe Absolutely. them. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're not, they're not quite no. at the level of the separate wives just They'll yet. They'll never be at the level of the separate wives because in fiction, I don't know if you've ever seen that film, it's called Bee Story. In the Bee Story, these bees like live in houses and they drive around in cars and it's possible to create in fiction scenarios and situations and possibilities that would never be possible outside of fiction. But sometimes, again, it's this conflation of different worlds, thinking that because something exists in one, it can exist in another, particularly when you have this channel of science and technology that's bringing stuff outside, inside of science fiction into this kind of real world that we live in. But most of it is, you know, what we see in science fiction is stays in science fiction, so to speak. That aside... Um, and I was looking into this, uh, the, the sex robot industry is actually a big thing. I mean, I've looked at some figures that said it's a sort of a, a multi-billion uh, dollar industry. Um, so if, 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 uh, if even if the, um, sort of the machines are not that advanced, uh, it is something that is well, expanding. Well, given, it depends what you mean by a sex robot, but given the definition of a sex robot is a mechanical device that um, runs automatically. It means that anything could be included in your sex robot industry, a vibrator um, with some pre-programmable mechanisms could presumably, 
I guess what we're talking about when we're having this conversation is a specific form, a specific object that's been created that looks very lifelike, primarily in the form of women and girl children, but I'm sure boys, young boys exist in as well. Um, that's, that's, I guess, what most people think about sex robots. And when you look at some of these predictions about the sex robot market, so I would just say what, what they actually including or excluding in that definition of a sex robot. But aside from that, most of these definitions are, are hypothetical figures. So let me give you an example. Real sure. dolls who produces the doll, sure. which is basically the platform, which is why you can't really talk about sex robots without talking about sex dolls, because it's like the, the sex doll itself preceded, it, it's the sex doll that's becoming mechanized. But anyway, they only sold about 400 units per year. No one was interested in them. It was so niche. It was like, you know, like being into rubber masks or... Um, uh, airplanes or something, just a niche, yeah, just a fetish. Now, what they did, and I, I think, I suppose from a marketing point of view, it's very clever, and it, I don't know whether they did it consciously or by accident, probably by accident, was they put the word robot into that. And by doing that, in terms of the public imagination, that throws up all kinds of ideas about what's happening. You know, so now it's not this doll of this niche. Now it, now it's something that can, if you like, in the psychological imagination, be connected with all these other objects that exist in the world. Some, most of them exist in fiction in this extraordinary way. And from there, you don't actually have to do much work after that to develop interest, marketing and advertising around your product. So you'll find that real dolls are less interested in talking about dolls actually now, more interested in talking about robots. But actually what they've developed, so they've got a robot head and it's like every, I think the last three years they've been telling us that they're going to release this robot. And we all thought it was going to be this fully fledged humanoid. I knew that it was never going to be that, but you know, and then gradually they've just pared down their ambitions and now it's a head and it's not even a head that operates by itself. It works with an app. So basically you, you put the head on your doll. And then you, um, you have this app that activates it and you're basically conversing with the app. And, but you're, the illusion is you're conversing with the doll. So from that perspective, um, we are talking about, we are talking about clever marketing and advertising around dolls. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. So in some sense, you're saying that it's just, What's called a sex robot is just a marketing ploy, effectively, when in fact, what is called a sex robot is just merely uh, another example of a sex toy, I guess. Yeah, it's just like, a, you know, it's probably got less tech than your average mobile phone in it. Um, or if you go to toy shops nowadays and you look at the kind of uh, mechanical section, you know, robotic section, robotic toys, it's probably just a bit... It's probably around the same as that, a mixture of a game a, a game and a toy, really. We're not talking about advanced artificial intelligence. I mean, the advanced stuff came from Google, who basically have billions and billions and billions and billions of search queries and inquiries and create algorithms about 
uh, predictive conversations and stuff. And I've created huge databases, language databases, which ha is the foundation for some of this uh, AI in uh, automated voice assistance. But it hasn't come out of this industry. What they've done is they've just taken applications that already exist and just tried to tweak them around their product. Can I ask then, um, according to your research on this uh, topic, do you, what is the gender makeup of the consumer consumers of these sex robots? Oh, nearly 100% male. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, should, I actually knew the answer to that, probably. Uh, yeah. It is an unfortunate situation, you see, because what's happened historically is rather than we've had an, a kind of a civil rights-based approach to human interpersonal relationships, i.e. Um, people develop, I guess, an alignment with each other through relationship with each other, figure out what their interests are through very grounded, embodied experiences. We've actually allowed a commercial and illegal market in sex to flourish that allows this asymmetrical humanism to develop. So it's actually created a problem in the world where now you have uh, more men with fetishes than ever existed before because you've got a great <laughs> yeah. exactly so that's exactly just, what we need <laughs> if, if you actually look at genres of porn and prostitution there is everything out there and 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 i would say arguably they wouldn't exist without the commercial and illegal sex trades to begin with because if our, if our sexuality, for example, was organized through our relationships with each other, then in a way we'd ground each other. We'd, we'd kind of, um, we, we'd, our, our sexuality would, would debate, would develop in a more dialogical way, in a civil way, a civil society way. But because we've sanctioned and allowed or have not really cared that much about a growth in commercial and illegal sex, you've actually got people now who actually can't get aroused with another human being. You know, they need to have be dressed in a nappy or they need to um, be wearing stilettos. And all this in itself is just creating more and more alienation, I think, more and more estrangement. So now you've got this new level of, as, as you know, and it's not, it's kind of an extension of what's been going on before, except that now you've put it in this, like, robotics framework. Um, but, yes, I think I think it tells us something about alienation, these practices. I think it does indeed. I mean, what's interesting about what you said there was the word uh, asymmetry. So uh, asymmetry rather than symmetry. So that, that uh, I guess your point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, these uh, sex robots, uh, as, as they are, are promoting relationships that are not reciprocal at all. It's rather it's a, a one way, like that app that you mentioned, for example. So you have, you know, someone uh, sets up an app which which controls uh, uh, a head uh, or something or whatever, and that then is well, it's an expression of a solipsism maybe at one level or narcissism even another. Absolutely, I completely, I completely agree with you. It's it's an absence of relationship that underlies it. Because only relationship between human beings can be civil. 
you know, our relationships are not commercial. That's why, that's why I said at the beginning, I am a humanistic because I believe in a radical separation of people from property. But I guess what's happened in our culture and historically is that separation has never been clearly established. So we do have a commercial sex market that itself is entangled with an illegal sex market, um, which means that anything can be bought. And I'm talking about anything. So what is, actually that's an interesting point that you make. What is the legality of this? Is there any legislation that covers this? Or has there been any, the introduction of any legislation, for example, in the UK, which covers the, these new emerging technologies? Well, that's a very good question. I'm trying to create that legislation around this issue because um, it's it's a complicated one because on the one hand, people who are advocating for them say that they can ameliorate all these problems. They can assist. They can be as they can be like used like other kinds of assistive technologies, which. Between you and me are the claims about these other beneficial <laughs> assistive technologies um, are seriously are often over exaggerated. So the, the advocates say that there'll be like assistive technologies. You know, they can help people with autism or you know they, the elderly who are lonely, and they could do the sex robots, or they could stop even more serious criminal behaviour like paedophilia. And I think yes. once we get into that territory, we then have to measure those claims with what's what we do have on the law books. And so I would I would certainly think um, when we're talking about child sex abuse dolls, because they can't be sex dolls, we cannot frame any adult interactions with children as solely sexual. We can only frame them as sexual abuse. So there, that's our first step. You know, we have to reintroduce the term abuse whenever we talk about child sex abuse dolls. We, because if we don't do that, then what we're doing is we're saying, ah, this, this is, this is an okay activity for adults to engage in. And then the hope is that somehow if they engage with that activity, that they will disconnect from all the other illegal activities associated with that area, which I mean, it's 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 such a, a reductionist point of view, isn't it? As a social scientist and a philosopher yourself, I'm sure you you can't you know that kind of reductionist worldview <laughs> um, is is very disturbing. But the reductionist, uh, sorry, sorry, Kathleen, the reductionist worldview is sort of inherent to the to the to the fact that these are produced uh, yeah. objects. Yes, and and their applications, you know, and so the people behind. The people behind them or the advocates of them are making all these claims about what they can do, but often in a very kind of narrow way without taking into account a more broader socio-cultural perspective. Um, I would say that if we looked at legislation that's in most countries of the world, the United Nations rights of the child, it, it talks about the best interests of the child could we ever feasibly argue that giving, and we're talking about dolls here that are in the form of children that have penetrable orifices. Does this exist? Yes, these child sex abuse dolls do exist, yeah. And these are part of the sex robot industry? 
these are part of because commercial sex and illegal sex they're they're interconnected they're part of each other they feed off each other um a lot of performers for example that end up in adult pornography or prostitution were uh, sexually assaulted as children sometimes part of uh, trafficking rings or part of other kind of abuse networks so this idea that somehow their separate industries is, is something that's not borne out by the evidence if you look closer. I would say the best interest of the child, is it, if we legally thought about that, is it in the best interest of, our, of, of the child for us to normalise an industry in child sex abuse dolls in the hope that it might pacify some adults from abusing children? then I would say, legally, no, it can never be justified. I, yeah, so um, I think, continuing on that train of thought, what interests me about this, I think, from a legalistic perspective, at least, and I'm no expert on, on uh, jurisprudence, but a lot of the law is based on, um, uh, well, consent, right? So... Uh, how do you understand that? I mean, it's not something you can apply to a sex robot, obviously, by your own parameters. You know, it's not only a human being can give consent, right? Um, so, I mean, in these sort of extreme cases of paedophilia, the idea would be that consent is uh, ought to be denied to for the production of uh, uh, child sex robots. Um, yeah, I suppose consent is one way in which people look at it, but I, you can't Consent is a very sophisticated uh, human legal and social term and ability. Uh, I don't think that can be programmed into machines. What you, when I talk about the best interests of the child, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of child protection, is it okay to normalize a culture? So the robots, the robots themselves... Um, the, it's the harms, it's the potential harms of the introducing, introduction of the robots on, on children, that that would be the issue there. I think sometimes people think when you, when I talk about child abuse, child sex abuse robots, I, people sometimes think that I'm talking about robots being harmed. You know, and I'm concerned that, you know, these dolls are being, um, like raped or something. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about these objects are part of a culture which already denigrates and turns into sex objects, uh, women and children, and it contributes to that. It kind of reinforces it. And I think there are different issues for adults and children. I think from the child point of view, it's the best interest of the child. It's about child dignity. It's about creating a safe space for children, um, and also it wouldn't work. I read a, I read a figure the other day. Apparently, in 1990, before the advent of the internet, police authorities knew about 7,000 abuse images, child abuse imagery in in circulation. In 2014, I think, on one computer alone, they found 2.5 million images. So we're talking about a billion, we're probably talking about billions of abuse images now, 
And do you think child abusers get to the point where they go, oh, I, I think, I think we've got enough images now of children being raped and, and, um, mutilated and murdered and, and I think that's enough now. I think, I think we'll stop. That's not how it works because it's part of their inner lives and they want to keep reproducing it and keep seeking out, you know, new images, new experiences. Where, where they, you know, where they rape and abuse children. I so, mean, you must, you must not get too much obstacles to this. I mean, sh- I'm presuming that there would be, well, I say that naively perhaps, but there would be universal uh, support for your proposals here. I mean, who wants uh, children to be sexually abused? At least, who would openly admit that? I, I agree. Um, but I guess it's the idea that somehow you can address an abuse issue with some kind of sexual um, right. therapy, you know, because it's not about sex. When we're talk- that, you know, this is what child campaigners have been fighting for for decades, and none of us understood where they were coming from. I certainly didn't. And they kept telling us, don't say sex, don't say sex with children, you know, say sex abuse, don't say... Um, a sexual uh, activity, say sexual abuse or a rape or a sexual assault, because for the child, we're, we only use the term sex because adults, particularly um, uh, men, not you included, but you. <laughs> other men have, have used the term sex and they see it as sex. So because the adult men engaged in the act see it as sex, they see it as their sexual expression we became used to using that term sex to talk about anything, whether it was the rape of women or abuse of children or even bestiality, because it was all framed as sex. But actually, sex is not something you do by yourself. And if it, when it's with another person, they actually, their participation does matter. And actually, if they're not participating or they're there for other reasons, um, then it stops being sex and it turns into these other forms of abuse. So could be coercive sex, could be sexual abuse, could be rape, but it stops being civil. It stops being what we understand by sex as a civil phenomenon. I think that's very helpful, actually, because, uh, I mean, sexual violence, for example, is not about the elicitation of pleasure. It's about the exercise of uh, coercion and power. Exactly. And it's taken a long time for child campaigners to get this message through. I mean, even in the newspapers, there was an example the other day of it said a sex game had gone wrong. And in this so-called sex game was a man holding a knife to a woman's throat. Right. And and he killed her. So what's happened in our culture where it's now become seen as a sex game to hold a knife to another human being's throat, and it was even called a game as well, like a game gone wrong. And so people are getting people to say, hang on a minute, why? let's think about the terms that they use, let's, uh, let's think about the meanings that they're communicating when people are reading this. So, for example, if one human, you know, if one man decided to jump on another man and in a, in a, hold a knife to his throat, um, he couldn't, if he died, it would be very hard for the other person to reason that they were involved in a game and it went wrong. 
But because we've got this distorted idea of what sex is, and sex includes violence, it includes rape, it includes abuse, then actually we still get these meanings jumbled up together. So there's a, there's a lot of people doing work around this, about trying to accurately name what is going on. So where are you then on situations? I mean, we're slightly going off the topic of sex robots here, but this is this is a very interesting. Um, where are you on, uh, or what are your views, or t- uh, I guess, on situations such as the one you outlined, where consent is initially granted, but then is withdrawn? So presumably that person you were talking about may have consented to having a sex game uh, where where there was some form of sadomasochism involved, but then she, that person certainly didn't uh, consent to be murdered in the in the in the during in, 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 in the duration of that event. I think if someone's event. murdered, it's not sex anymore. It's manslaughter. It's a criminal offence. Um, I think the very fact that we've now we can normalise violence through calling it sadomasochism um, is a problem. It actually means that we're living in a culture now where where more and more, if you like, violence can be re-inscribed or, or more violence can take place between persons if it's recast as sex, it's it's okay. And that is a problem. That that actually says that's actually giving a green light to sadists. And if you look closer at the recent case that I just mentioned, you find out that this apparent sex game happened after a brief encounter. And I can't imagine many women, even if you're very drunk, uh, letting someone you've just met off the streets uh, put a knife to your throat. Yes, um, no, quite, quite. Um, so um, getting it back to the, the sort of our discussion of sort of technology and uh, sex robots, um, I guess... What your what your sort of overall concern is, judging from what you're saying, is that in some way these practices, this sort of devaluation of uh, sex or this dissymmetry in sexual relations, is re- is leading to some kind of deleterious effects on the notion of personhood. I would say yes. I think personhood itself. You're going to have to read my book about this because I've got a couple of chapters. Well, one in particular around the personhood issue. What's the title of your book? Kathleen? It's called Sex Robots, The End of Love. So let me just, the history of personhood is quite interesting because it used to be that human beings were just persons. And when we tend to think of a person, we tend to think of a, a human being. But then what happened in about the 1800s is corporations claimed rights that they were actually given to freed slaves because there was this problem in American society about how you how you have this philosophy of all men are created equal and then half of the men in your society can't vote or participate or they're slaves. So in the 14th Amendment, they uh, gave freed slaves um, equal protection under the law. And at that point, what was very interesting was that corporations took that legislation and thought, hmm, how can we use this legislation to extend our rights? So at the moment when the franchise went beyond a narrow group of white, privileged, property-owning men to more white, to include more 
more um, other other men in that category, the elite corporations decided to claim back some of those rights through corporate personhood. So I think, in a way, that that has to me that shows the problem that we've never really lived in a culture or a society where we fully rejected the idea of a, a person as property or property as persons. And whilst this entanglement still exists, and it and it is um, it, it is developing in a new way around. Um, robots and AI, because now I call it property relations, which quite literally means relationships with property. That's what it means. Men who are with these dolls or even women who buy them, what they're actually doing is having, being told that they can have a relationship with property. So, yeah, so it's, um, well, it's basically objectification you're talking about there, the treating of people as things, is that right? Absolutely. In fact, you know, we should listen to people who came before us because, you know, they had a lot of good ideas. Um, I think if you look back philosophically, only Immanuel Kant was really the only white Enlightenment philosopher who basically re- rejected slavery in all its forms. If you look at even the work of Hegel or um, and Marx obviously clearly rejected it. If you look at Hegel or... Hume or others, you find that they, they're a bit ambivalent about what's a person and what's property and how they overlap. So I think it's always because it's the most, it's the most revolutionary viewpoint as it happens to reject the idea that people are property because it means if you accept it, if you understand it and you accept it, it means you have to change a system that doesn't value people. That's basically what it what it will mean. Yeah, I mean, you you mean you mentioned Kant there, so I'm trying to figure out like, I mean, you you sort of really clearly articulate uh, the, the, the the devaluing of personhood, um, and you mentioned Kant, and I can I guess Kant's idea is that human beings are ends in themselves; they're worthy of respect because uh, of their autonomy. They're because they have the they're yeah autonomous. They're self-legislating beings. So I'm trying to think: how would you? What is your sort of positive view of personhood? You know, how do you understand a full sense of personhood or, or a rich sense of personhood, one that is not being coerced or impinged on? Yeah, I well, this is what, that's the question we need to ask as a culture. For me, it would be rejecting any element of property inside personhood. So for me. One of the rejections of it would be the abolition of the commercial sex trade. Because in that, it's a clear, it's a clear structure that allows people's bodies to be transacted as property. And so abolishing it, and you've got to imagine how enormously difficult it would be to do that. It would create a kind of, a, a massive change in human consciousness if you could persuade people to reject that form of commodification, because then they'd reject so many other things that, you know, that um, they'd reject so many other forms of alienation that that go alongside with believing in the idea that you can buy sex. You 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 don't buy sex from a person; you buy access to another body in just the same way that you 
you don't, you can't relate to another human being like you relate to an object, but I'm afraid we do in this world every single day. I mean, you say that's difficult. I mean, the, I mean, just in practical terms, it's, well, I guess it would be impossible really, wouldn't it, to, to, because I mean, you're, you're talking here about the abolition of the sex trade, all forms of uh, commercial sex relations. Is yes. that correct? All of them. Right. Oh, every single one yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, uh, so how does one go about doing that? Like, I mean, do you do it sort of democratically through, uh, I mean, where are you on, say, I don't know, what are called more progressive societies like Sweden who have got, well, uh, supposedly uh, better, uh, better, uh, better, uh, uh, better legislation on uh, uh, sex relations or sex work? Uh, yes, I think if you look at policies that have developed when women have become more involved in politics, for example, when it, and I'm not talking here about just more numbers, I'm talking about kind of an empirical understanding of women's play, exclusion in the first place. So I was a woman for a long time. I'm still a woman, of course, but I, I wasn't a feminist. A feminism, radical feminism, are a set of ideas, you know, and an analytical, practical framework of making sense of the world and taking actions and steps to change it. So I was an anti-feminist, you know. I wasn't any. I didn't like any form of it. I thought it was all awful, and I was huh. kind of. Um, one of those people who I now have discussions with. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're woke. Yeah, so that's why I try to be... I mean, that's why I think it's important that we do have a dialogue and we have a discussion. We don't shut people down. We don't say people can't have viewpoints because I know myself, I've held viewpoints and through reason, through discussion, through a change of circumstances, through more experiences, you know, you can come to different conclusions and I think that's what's really extraordinary about human beings that we can and I guess my ethics is also clearer now than perhaps it was when I was a, a younger woman because I do want to live in a society that's violence free I don't want violence to be an organizing factor I don't want wealth to be a factor in how we are able to have relationships with each other I want us to solve those issues and this is one of your points, right? I mean, you you say that sort of these practices, I mean, and not just the, the practices of uh, sex robots or, or, or sexual technology. You, you say that there's that well that they lead a negative outcome of these practices is that they lead to companionship deficit. I think that's your term. Is that correct? Uh, no, but that's a good term. I might have said it somewhere, somewhere. It sounds like something I would say, uh, <laughs> although I do. I don't like the deficit model, deficit excess way of thinking, because it's a bit too mechanical for me. But but you're right. I think let's look at there is something that's very different about our world that's never existed before, and that is we've never we've never lived in a world where we're so surrounded by other human beings. We've got more people alive than ever before, more opportunities to make relationships, to form relationships to be in relationship, to be, to use relationship creatively to change the world around us. And yet, what are we finding again and again? We're finding uh, 
certain populations are becoming more isolated, so whether they're uh, elderly or disabled. We find swathes now of young men becoming alienated as well, becoming frustrated about their place in the world, and they spend a lot of time watching online pornography. And when the world doesn't conform to what they've learned from pornography, they get very angry, and you can see that in groups like the incel movement. You find in, in Japan there are growing numbers of men who have never been in an intimate relationship and growing numbers of women as well who kind of don't want to be in relationship with these men because they don't want to be housewives. So we're finding actually a, a movement away from relationship and that movement away from relationship is the problem because it's a, a corporate dehumanizing world that means that people turn away from relationship because having, you know, there are so many pressures now placed on people in this world and there's so many struggles that they feel like they have to face alone that loneliness and isolation becomes a, a way of managing that complexity of just dealing with it. And these New capitalists who come along with their new products are persuading people to buy their products and they're going to alleviate that suffering. But all they'll do is they'll create a new layer of suffering among people and intensify isolation. And I don't want to live in that world. It's not good for ordinary people. It might be good for corporations to sell products, but it's not good for the rest of us. So you mentioned loneliness there. I mean, that's one of the things that struck me when I was sort of uh, researching the background on this, that, uh, I mean, a lot of the consumers of this, as you say, is, is men, but they also seem to be very, very lonely men. I mean, that's the, that's the cliche, isn't it, that the sex robot is the perfect woman for the lonely man, isn't it? Because it's like it, it doesn't answer back, it does what you tell it, you can have sex with it, or what is called sex with it, when you, when, when you want. So I'm wondering how that question of loneliness sort of works for you, because you're someone who's advocating, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, a form of sort of liberal autonomy. I might be wrong on that. But you're, you're saying that autonomy is important. But is is autonomy then, you know, the, is autonomy, the idea of individualism, is that, you know, something that uh, that is also driving these negative practices forward? Because, I mean, lo loneliness, in some sense, is, a, is, a, is symptomatic of individualism. Um. I would, I would agree with that. Again, there are extraordinary people who already identified this. I think Max Weber's The Protestant Work Ethics probably... Great book, great book. It is a great book. He probably has the best explanation for it as well, which is um, basically when you introduce calculation into private relations, informal relations, you turn every... You, um, rationalize them, make them bureaucratic, turn them into commercial transactions, you start to create distance between people. And that happened in the world of work, and I suppose we were able to manage that distance created between people through the world of work. But capitalism also, also impacts on people's interpersonal relations, and this is why it's not optional about the commercial sex trade. If you want a different world, it has to be abolished. 
because the commercial sex trade allows a kind of commercialism to operate at this very private interpersonal level, what it does is it brings in the market into these private spheres. And that in itself produces different kinds of expectations, different kinds of um, connections, trust, intimacies. All those things start to break down. Once you introduce commercialism into the private realm, into interpersonal dynamics, you sh- the interpersonal stuff starts to degrade. It starts to transform into something else, into an it in the booba sense of the term. So, so Martin Buber, yeah. I it, yeah, and there's a so the I it, and just for the listeners, uh, the I it and Martin Buber is basically a relationship which is objectified. Yes, it's um, it's because everyone is having relationships, and when we talk about lonely people, we're not saying people who don't have relationships with other people in their lives. It means that whatever's going on in their lives, they're they're. They're not getting what they need from those relationships. But we're not talking about loneliness in the sense of someone being completely disconnected. I mean, you could be disconnected if you lived on the top of a mountain and never interacted with people. But most of these people aren't. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who do have people in and around their lives. But... um, they are not, for one reason or another, not feeling that they're connecting. Now, sometimes, in the case of these men, for instance, that I've described, some of that loneliness is produced through the commercial impact of the commercial sex trade on them. So what happens is they're viewing imagery of extreme acts and becoming aroused through them. And then what happens then, they try to have relationships with in real life, with people who won't do what they see in pornography, because in order to get people to do what they do in pornography, you have to really break them down quite significantly as human beings. So you have to attack their their personhood, basically. Yeah, you destroy their personhood, and that's how you get them to carry out those acts in pornography. it's, It's probably, for most people, from what they what they found about pornography, the average time... A woman is in pornography is six weeks because it's so in order to be in it, you have to be broken. Most people might experiment, but you have to be broken to stay in it. And the people who stay in it are really they've experienced so much abuse and extreme forms of, I would say, torture. That's why. So you're not likely to get someone you've just met, you know, at your workplace, interested in the same extreme levels of torture, uh, basically. And that means that the men aren't satisfied because they want someone that they can torture, like they see in the pornography. So some of this loneliness is is actually not something that can be... There are some aspects of loneliness that can be addressed through relationship, but some of it has to be about, well, what is what is making the person feel lonely? Is it unrealistic expectations of others? Is it wanting more from others than they're able to give realistically? And that means that the person might have an attachment disorder or some other attachment difficulty. And actually, if they address the attachment difficulty, then they would attract... Uh, 
then they would find ways to address the loneliness issues that they experience. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess this is a a difficult question. I mean, I certainly don't have an answer to it, but I mean, of of sort of the, 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 the groups of women that you talk about, and I presume you've talked to lots of different women from different backgrounds about all of this, these issues. I mean, where does the uh, the role of agency um, uh, come into it? I mean, I, 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 you're not saying that sex workers have no agency, although they can be put into a role of sort of coerced passivity, perhaps, where a- agency is diminished. Um, uh, and I guess that's the same for pornographers uh, or people who work in pornography as well. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to see... How, how for you, from the people you've talked to, from the women you've talked to about this, where does, uh, what is your, what is your views on, on the role of agency? You know, the, the idea that one is a, that sense of self-capacity or that sense of one can do something with self. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think that, that it's interesting you've asked me that. So let's, let's not talk about commercial sex. Let's talk about voting and, and selling your votes. So what about, you know, I'm sure most people, if you gave them a choice of buying their vote, they would probably say, yes, it could be bought. And you could, if you said, no, no, you can't sell your vote because actually if you stop people selling their vote, then you're denying people agency. But okay. people would respond to that and say, hang on a minute, no, no, a, a vote is non-transferable. It cannot be sold in the first place. It belongs to the person. And that's where I stand on this issue. The only reason why we're talking about it as an agency issue is because... Okay people make an awful lot of money from it and it has an industry that has an awful lot of consumers and a lot of intellectual energy goes into questions like agency. But there are other issues around agency where we wouldn't entertain at all, i.e. most people wouldn't entertain chopping off their legs for sexual arousal. Uh, But what about your agency? I mean, there are some people who believe, I met one actually, at an event I talked to someone who said cannibalism if that's what people want then they should be allowed to be eaten Um, so I guess there are some libertarian views which is anything goes but even libertarians you know have their limits about what is agency I think they would probably find be hard pressed to agree to the buying and selling of votes uh, I'm sure there are some libertarians who would say, yes, let people do that. But we, we have principles around things, why we don't permit things. And the reality is we wouldn't be having this conversation about women's agency in pornography and prostitution. We wouldn't be framing it that way if we had real uh, equality for women over the last 2,000 years. It's only because we haven't had equality for women that things get framed in this way. We wouldn't, you know, we're having the conversation about abolishing the commercial sex trade at the time when women's movements, women's rights is developing. I think that tells us something about what's really going on. So in terms of the agency, then, I mean, the reason I asked is because I suppose it's 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 one of the things that people conventionally attached to the nation, the idea of autonomy. One of the things that distinguishes us, maybe not the only thing, uh, one of the things that says that we are autonomous beings is that we, we have, you know, agency or we're not, not coerced. No, I, when I mentioned Kant, I wasn't taking mm. on board wholesale everything he said. I was saying that he was probably the only philosopher I've come across, 
apart from Karl Marx later on, who like rejected the idea of people as property. All the other philosophers did. Now, uh, Kantian worldviews uh, suffers from the same problematics as Cartesian worldviews. It's um, uh, a disembodied kind of philosophy, you know, that there's consciousness and it belongs to humans and then there's all this other stuff out there. I'm a Buberian in this respect here. Martin Buber. So, yeah, Martin Buber. So Martin Buber said the words are combined. The word I, you cannot say the word I by itself. Whenever you say the word I, you always imply an other. And he said there are two ways that you can imply an other. It can be an it, i.e. something, you've, another human being you've objectified, or it can be a thou, someone who you accept like yourself, you you kind of enter into relationship with through the meeting, through the encounter. So that's where I stand. I do not believe you that in this idea of a a rational subject is really a kind of a legal um, convenience. Yeah, it's a it's a a legal framework in which to give people certain kinds of rights in a particular socio-economic organization. But there is no such thing as an autonomous, if we think about autonomous meaning separate human being. We're all interpersonal. We are kind of, we don't exist outside of our relationships with each other. Now, my relationships are going to be different from your relationships because we are different people. But you are an out. This is not my work, actually. This is the I have to credit where credit's due. It's the brilliant, brilliant work of Caitlin Buon, who's a psychodramatist, and she's she says that actually we're all an outcome of our relationships. So I'm Kathleen as I am now, and I am an outcome of a relationship with myself and a relationship with all the people who have been a part of my life. Some of those relationships have been more important than others. But all of them have, you know, informed some more than others in who I am. And the same with you and the same with your child uh, or if you've got one and the same with your mother and the same with your father. They're all an outcome of themselves and their relationships simultaneously. And that's very different from Kantian's rational subjects that exist in, a, in and of its own right, you know, a disembodied I. I understand. Uh, also, I think, uh, in addition to what you're saying, that uh, there's a there's more room for a discussion about equality on that. Then, if you're understanding things, uh, if you're understanding relations interpersonally, it means that well, you know that uh, our uh, you you uh, there, well, there's no dissymmetry. There can't be a dissymmetry, and if there's no dissymmetry, then you can't, that I guess this is what you're saying. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, it means that you you can't, in good conscience, enter into relations of objectification or coercion. Absolutely, yes. Okay, okay. Um, uh, no, just try to think through it. Um, now, uh, I guess we're kind of running out of time here, uh, but uh, I, I got a couple of sort of uh, questions that I want to sort of ask you. Um, given that you've already said that you that you ha you had a sort of a transformation from uh, someone who. Uh, well, I think you said you hated feminism to yeah. someone who became a feminist. Um, uh, I'm wondering, uh, I'm just wondering sort of biographically, how, how did that happen? Uh, well, you see, actually, 
I don't, I, I actually, if you were to, uh, know, know my outlook, you would see that actually it's taken from lots of different places. Because what I really look for is this underlying commitment to human beings in everybody I read. And so I find that commitment in the work of Martin Buber. I find the commitment in the work of Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. I find it in Caitlin Buon. So, so for me, it's, I'm, I'm less concerned to identify wholesale with one particular outlook, but sets of ideas that actually you can find in lots of different places. Um, and if, if you, you, you know, if you're a Buddhist, I'm not religious at all. I don't believe in God. And you've got a good idea about something. I, I could probably make use of it in my own way of understanding the world. So I'm not attached to any kind of identification in that sense. I'm more concerned with the underlying philosophy. Where do you stand on the, on the idea of human beings? That's really the question that I ask when I, address any ideas or use any ideas in my own work. But actually the reason why I became, I, w- I would say that I, I incorporate radical feminism a lot into my thinking now is because I read a book called Pornography and Civil Rights by Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon about the civil rights movements in the United States and how pornography became tangled up in those debates. And actually when I was reading that book, at exactly the same time, I was reading Aristotle's The Politics. I don't know if you've read Aristotle's The Politics, but it's... I have, I have yeah. So it's... Um, these are very different books to read simultaneously, but they seem to make, you know, for some reason, the combination of them together seem to open a door, if you like, in terms of my understanding of the world. Because here we have this patriarchal worldview which was basically a philosopher rationalizing a system of objectification, slavery, of slaves and women and children, and, and, and narrating it as if, as if it was a virtue. And then we had the actual reality of what goes on in pornography, of abuse and subordination and violence, being narrated as a virtue. And I, and I just realized that there was something in this literature around radical feminism, uh, abolitionist feminism, that really connected with me, and that's really what led to the change. Okay. So uh, one last question. Uh, there's lot. Uh, I mean, there's. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid we just don't have the time to talk more. There's tons of stuff uh, there that I'd like to develop. Um, but I'd like to just uh, sort of give you the opportunity uh, to explain to the listeners about. Um, your campaign, uh, so you're, you're a founder of the camp, uh, or a, a co-founder at least of the campaign against sex robots. So could you maybe just, uh, tell us a little bit about your activism? Yeah. So again, I've been studying robots. I've been studying people saying you can have relationships. They can be your companions. They can be your friends. And then, you know, what, by the time I heard they can be your replacements to your wives and your girlfriends, I just thought enough is enough. You know, when are we, I really felt I needed to take a stand at that point uh, about what I see as this continuous denigration of human beings and our relationships with each other. 
And so I launched the campaign. I wrote a paper because I looked into the way in which they made a case for sex robots. They would often rely on very commercialized ideas about human relationships as the kind of uh, philosophical basis. Um, and I launched it. And since then, that people talked about sex robots before I came on the scene, but it was primarily a lot of discussions within a community that was very pro-commercial sex. So for them, they couldn't really say anything beyond, you know, is this a good thing or, you know, the basic ethics questions that you might ask. Um, so you, so you yeah, so, yeah, what is the useful? That's a good way. <laughs> I'm, I'm losing my words now. Um, what is the usefulness of the object? Whereas I came in and I was able to give a more richer humanistic perspective about human beings being radically dissimilar from property. And actually, that was a very important principle to keep defending. Because not only is it not true that these objects can play the role of intimate relationships, but the consequences for our relationships with each other are going to be terrifying. One quick question to finish. Thank you for that. Um, do you have hope for the future of relationships between men and women? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, men and women coexist together. They they need each other. I am the product of a relationship between a man and a woman. And it's just so... I mean, it's so necessary for our existence to be in relationship with each other, to build a politics from a place of being in relationship with each other. And that's what I think needs to develop. But it does mean challenging ideas, long-held ideas, long-held power norms, things that people aren't happy with. Um, because I always, you know, I try to characterize this. When there's a fantasy that's very common, right, and it's always a fantasy about the person, a young person getting picked on by people. But when the person, you know, when the boy or the girl's getting picked on, the person that they really like is, is watching, but they see them being picked on so that they kind of lose a bit of respect. So they go away and they learn skills and they become really strong. And then a time occurs in the future where they can face their bully. <laughs> And it just so happens at that moment, the person who they love is, is watching. And by, when the person is watching, they get to defeat this person and thereby winning, uh, approval in the eyes of the other. That is a patriarchal fantasy. That is such a common fantasy among ordinary people. They always want to get over on, uh, get over on someone who's done them wrong particularly in the presence of someone that they admire or love. And as long as we have that hierarchical, competitive worldview, you know, it, things will, will never change. We just keep going around in circles because someone's always going to be bigger and stronger. It's unlikely that just because you've beaten up your bully that the person that you love is going to love you back anyway. You know, that's a fantasy. So it's about developing a different idea of relationships that's really... That really comes from our real experiences, not from kind of scenarios in, in fictions or patriarchal fantasies of domination. That seems to be um, 
yeah, th- th- thank you for that, Kathleen. I mean, that seems to be sort of one of the things that you're you're trying to make things real rather than well, fantastical. Yeah, bring it. I think the real is where everything is at, and the real exists between people. So the more that you can get, you can more that you can really be with each other, the more real things can become. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.